Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everyone to another monumental um, halakha session on Surah Baqarah. I'm so excited. Um, since we were last here, it feels like a blink of an eye. Um, and just so again to like give everyone a little bit of perspective. Um, we were here Wednesday night and then Wednesday night after we finished, Sheikh had to prepare for class on Thursday. He taught on Thursday, um, had also a number of meetings and then prepared Thursday night for the Friday Khutbah, and then last night after the khutbah, prepared for today. So this is again, like just to give you a sense of what it's like here and how intense it is for Sheikh. And so uh, just to express again, our absolute gratitude. Um, and you know, what is actually truly incredible too, is I wanted to call out um, the khutbah yesterday, which was, I mean, all of them are mind blowing, but yesterday was especially mind blowing where he was talking about artificial intelligence. And the title of the khutbah is What Happens When Artificial Intelligence Turns Islamophobic? Um, it's something you probably have never heard anywhere, um, much less you know, would expect to hear in um, a khutbah. Um, and it's, it's absolutely stunning and powerful because it implicates so many different things about what is wrong in our community and what's wrong in our world when um, an artificial intelligence system that runs basically every part of our society just takes what garbage in is or garbage is on the internet or what is on the internet takes it in and throws it back to us it's not programmed it's just working based on what is in the world at large on the internet and plays back for us um, what it means um, when we try to input things that have to do with islam so for example, you know, it, it actually creates text based on, you know, this artificial intelligence. So if you put in something like about a Muslim, like two Muslims walk into A and ask it to finish that sentence, everything that it would throw back in all of these different situations where they would test it would um, portray Muslims as violent or as, you know, part of a, a horrible religion. I mean, it was difficult and challenging for people who were testing this to input some kind of prompt that would elicit something positive when it came to Muslims or Islam. And these are systems that, you know, that are involved in our banking system, in our, you know, healthcare system, in our, I mean, every education system, every single system that uses artificial intelligence or electronics. And so it's, it's incredible. Um, it, I think, left a lot of us here really speechless. Um, and so actually what I wanted to do also is to share a comment from it. I actually have a few emails that I thought I would share today, which you know is, is always so interesting to know how people are receiving what we're doing. So this was a comment in response to yesterday's um, artificial intelligence khutbah. Um, Dear Sheikh, your voice has woken me up. I have been trying to combat Islamophobia in Germany over a year now, and I have to tell you that the situation is sadly the same there. There is no serious attempt from any organization to properly combat Islamophobia, and I sometimes feel I'm all alone in this fight, which includes taking Islamophobes to court. I have barely the resources and the time to do what I'm doing, but I feel the responsibility on my shoulders since no one else seems to be doing anything. You, Grace, and the team have my utmost respect for bringing awareness to the Muslim communities around the world for all of these years. You may not reach a lot of people directly, but you certainly are waking up people who then in turn try to do the same. Shukran Jazeelan. So uh, that was really beautiful. And so I really encourage you guys to, to watch that and share it um, because I think if people understand you know, the, the, the direct impact of, of Islamophobia and inaction, um, it's truly scary. Um, Okay, second email um, that is switching gears a little bit. You know, we talk a lot here um, about the hijab issue, 
and you know people have accused me of being obsessed by this thing about hijab I just I wanted to share this email because for me the issue is not about whether it's right or wrong I mean we've said so many times here it's up to the individual you know woman between her and her God to determine what is right for that person it's not my place to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do or what they should or shouldn't feel what I have a problem with is when hijab becomes a symbol of something um, of, of faith or you know the fact that women really suffer when it comes to people imposing their views um, you know and and they believe so strongly that you absolutely have to wear hijab this is a closed you know situation it's like a sixth pillar of Islam women suffer and that is what I have an issue with so let me just share with you this really beautiful email that I received Salam Grace I hope you and Dr. Abul Fadl are well this is the third email I'm writing to you and the Sula Institute because I cannot thank you all enough for all you do this time in particular, I wanted to send a note to express gratitude for you and, and Dr. Abul Fadl's willingness to discuss issues of hijab and modesty for Muslim women. I reverted to Islam at the age of 19 and hit the first stumbling block in my journey of faith about two years later when I was confronted by the argument that without hijab, I was not really a pious Muslim woman or trying to be one. The spiritual crisis about hijab and all the associated fears about being a woman or fitna inspired by mis misogynistic hadith that followed was terrible, but truly Dr. Abu Fadl's books and halakhas were all that got me out of it. They were my introduction to his work and like a light at the end of a dark tunnel. Years later, having moved on from that pain and strengthened my, my faith deeply, alhamdulillah, seeing you discuss your experience as a revert and not wearing hijab adds another layer of peace to my heart. Thank you so much for your honesty and strength in discussing these topics. It means so much to me. So this is this is what I mean. This is why it's important, you know. And it's it's just when when you know a hijab as a symbol becomes a way to to oppress women and prevent them from seeing the beauty of their faith. That is really what makes me crazy and feel like okay, I'm going to keep talking about this because you know I don't care if people tell me I'm obsessed with it, but this is the issue. Okay, um, third email. This is sweet. Um, this was a comment. Um, in response to our very, very first halakha, which is um, Halid Abul Fadl inaugurates the Asuli Institute. So it was all the way back in December of 2017. And the reason why I get excited about it is because um, it's, you know, people are still finding us and they're finding us and starting from the very beginning, from the very first um, halakha. So this is the comment. Um, this inauguration speech by itself is an incredibly eye-opening fount of knowledge. It is at once terrifyingly confronting <clears throat> about what we've been doing as a community and what this could mean for our future, but at the same time, incredibly hopeful. I'm saddened that I did not find this earlier. I'm glad that I have found this now. Thank you for uploading this. And so this was literally just within the last week that they found the very first halakha, so thank you. Um, so alhamdulillah, I mean, I, I honestly believe like, you know, God will send people when they're ready and, you know, and alhamdulillah, you know, when people find something that is valuable for them and, and let us know. So thank you for the comment if you've seen this. Um, and then the last email was just um, a sweet response to um, the start of Surah Baqarah. So I think we've all been really excited. And so this is a message, um, Salam Grace. I can't believe that the professor started on Surah Al-Baqarah already. God bless you for making him pray on it and to the <laughs> professor for taking this challenge. 
He looked like he had five boulders on his shoulder in the beginning of the halakha, while you looked like an excited teenager, a feeling we all shared, I'm sure. It was an amazing day one. Um, so I just wanted to share that. <laughs> and um, I, you know, we had a lot of really lovely comments um, in response. I know people are <clears throat> super, super excited. One person even said they're more excited about um, Surah Baqarah um, than when we announced we were doing Surah Kaf. So that was that was very cool. But anyway, so thank you everyone for being with us. I, I am so, so, so excited for the continuation. Um, please um, take your time. Thank you um, so much. And um, I know we're all so grateful to, to be here with you. So looking forward to another amazing session. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <coughs> Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa antabu bi ihsani ila yawmitin. Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yastar li amri wa ahlul uqdafan min lisani yafqa qawli. Just a, a quick connector to where we left off. So, we talked about the reality of the situation that existed in Medina when Surah Al-Baqarah uh, is revealed and we said that there is, uh, I, inshallah what I intend to do is to situate Surah Al-Baqarah and then after situating Surah Al-Baqarah and talking about its, its uh, principal performance, if you will, its principal engagement, uh, its principal mission, I will go back again and then talk about the prescriptions of Surah Al-Baqarah, what Surah Al-Baqarah teaches beyond the historical moment that um, that it interacted with. And as I'm sure you recall, we, we said that um, the situation in Medina is was complicated because there were the traditional tribal affiliations and the traditional tribal conflicts that the constitution of Medina attempted to um, modify and uh, deal with in in a in a in an orderly structural manner, but at the same time. It was, there is, uh, it is clear that for the first years at least, one of the challenges that confronts the Prophet and his followers is these traditional uh, biases, these traditional affiliations on top of that, as we said, there are people who do not convert to Islam and as and they are affiliated or at least form a, a, um, uh, a dissenting front 
allied to, with the Jews in Medina, the Jewish tribes in Medina, and uh, as we said, there are also the reality of those who pretend to convert to Islam, whether from natives of Medina themselves or from among the Jewish tribes, and um, that then become a fifth column, if you will, among Muslims. And Surah al-Baqarah is confronting this entire complex reality and addressing it in a multi-layered fashion. And as we talked about that, for instance, Surah al-Baqarah around verse 6 when it, it talks about individuals uh, like Hayb bin Ahtab uh, and Ka'b bin Ashraf who are among the Jewish tribes who become very prominent critics of Islam and they're the ones who raise objections like, well, you know, th this doesn't sound like God's speech because God, God wouldn't give examples using um, ex metaphors and examples uh, uh, referring to ants and spiders and, and, and so on. And so we've talked about that. And at the same time, um, the insistence among Jewish tribes that as God's chosen people, they know that the Bible, that it is impossible for God to send a prophet who is not a descendant of the Israelites, and that it is impossible that God would send a prophet that is a descendant of the Ibrahim Ismaili branch of the family, which is mixed blood. It's mixed Israelite blood mixed with Egyptian blood mixed with Arab blood. So in other words, the progeny of Ismail. And what became known as the Al-Arab al-Mustaribah or the, I mean, which roughly translates as the Arabized Arabs, meaning the Arabs who are not of uh, pure Qahtani descent. Okay. So, we've already then encountered in Surah Al-Baqarah where Allah confronts this phenomenon and head-on talks about those who say that they believe but in fact they're not believers, talks about those who refuse to believe but the thrust of the entire beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah is directed at the Israelite tribes, the Jewish tribes. And as we will see, it takes on 
a number of claims by the Jewish tribes in Medina. And there is a very important point to this, is that it's not just that Muslims expected that their natural allies would be the Jews of Medina, or hoped that their natural allies would be the Jews of Medina as fellow monotheists. But as I said, that the Jewish tribes in Medina had had a history of taunting the Arabs of Medina that they are the literate class, they are God's chosen people, and that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will lead them in subjugating whoever their, their enemies are and whoever their foes are. But at the same time, the Arab tribes, the, the Jewish tribes in Medina had become involved in a rather complex way in the feud between the Aus al-Khazraj, a historical feud between the Aus al-Khazraj. But um, not consistently and systematically. So they they're sometimes get involved and they sometimes step out of the conflict, but consistently they are benefiting from the existence of this conflict. And many of these benefits are going to come to an end with the presence of the Prophet and the, the new structure, the new constitution. Uh, the new social political situation that exists in Medina. So what is fascinating is that Surah Al-Baqarah, the entire beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, you notice that it takes on the idea of the chosen people. And it is not just that there is the issue of, well, if Jews are the chosen people, then, then how do we make sense of the prophet of Islam and the existence of Muslims? What are they? If Jews are the chosen people, then what are Muslims? So the very notion of, it, of God's chosen people creates a natural tension with the Islamic message. But beyond that is a development that comes with Islam which is... Um, how do I say, uniquely Islamic at the time. Because what the Quran, the, what, the, the, what Surah Al-Baqarah does is that it deconstructs the idea of a chosen people and instead of that replaces it with a a people who would fulfill a covenant and become God's people as long as 
they live up to the demands of the covenant. And that's why the discourse with the Jewish tribe or with the Israelites or the discourse in Surah Al-Baqarah about the Israelites is very critical. Put it simply and bluntly, in what ways have the Israelites failed God? What does Surah Al-Baqarah say about what justifies the sending of the Prophet Muhammad? Because all the errors, all the breaches, all the mistakes that Surah Al-Baqarah points out to is in fact not just a message to the Israelites, but more importantly, it is a message to Muslims. And as we will see, it is like saying to Muslims, here, here are examples of a people who received the covenant and what occurred that made God send Muhammad and charge the people of Muhammad with the obligation to Al-Amr al-Maruf to establish what is good and to resist what is bad. If you don't learn from what the Quran says were the mistakes of the Israelites, then you're missing the entire point. There is a tendency in the Islamic tradition to read Surah Al-Baqarah and read what Surah Al-Baqarah is telling the Israelites as somehow doing what, as we will see, the Bible itself does in sounding like, the, like in, in thinking that what the Quran is saying is that there's something wrong with the Israelites as a people. And sometimes this tendency becomes anti-Semitic or racist. But that's not what the Quran is doing. There's nothing wrong with the Israelites. There is something wrong with what the Israelites decided to do at different times. And you Muslims, if you do the same, you're in trouble. And it is not an exaggeration to say that just studying what Surah Al-Baqarah says about the ways that God's covenant was betrayed you get an entire education about what you must do as Muslims 
And what if you fail to do, you are in the same category. And it is the unjust cannot be the recipients of God's covenant. The unjust people who suffer from the types of errors laid out in Surah Al-Baqarah cannot be God's people, even if they what regardless of how they, they whatever they claim whatever they pretend to be uh, whatever ritualistic performances they do and so that's why it is important to walk through the beginning of surah al-baqarah and see the way that the quran is telling the israelites you got it wrong it is not about god picking a group of people who become God's favorites. It is not you, it is not the Christians, and it's not Muslims either. But there are terms to the covenant. And inshallah, as I will show you, what is really remarkable is that the Bible itself says the same thing, but the it was interpreted out of the Bible. The Bible, Allah Alam, only Allah knows what the Bible could have looked like if, if there weren't historical alterations that took place and, the, the, and so on. But there are enough of it that survived that preserves the basic same idea, but we'll see how it was dealt with. Okay, so I think we stopped, and I will come back, inshallah, to the story of Adam and Eve and um, um, the and the, forgive, the Allah forgiving Adam and Eve but I will come back to this. Um, when we deal with the prescriptive part of Surah Al-Baqarah. Because there is a lot to say about the various messages that Surah Al-Baqarah is saying beyond the historical context. Okay. So. So let's okay. So let's start with verse forty. And notice that the Quran does something that very much surprised the Jewish tribes is that Allah talks to the Israelites directly. And part of the dynamic is that the Jewish tribes in Medina assumed that the Prophet doesn't know all that the Torah says or all that also is found in the 
Talmud and part of what the Quran does is it addresses this exact precise point the polemics of the Jewish tribes against Muslims at the time so it starts out Ya Bani Israel Uskuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum wawfu bi'ahdi ufi bi'ahdikum wa iyaya farhabun So, fully, the most startling thing is that, and I'm sorry to keep underscoring this point, but because it doesn't exist in our tradition, so, and it is imperative that it becomes an established fact in our tradition. You have in you a message trying to establish itself and anchor itself in Medina. And among your most prominent critics, and in fact the critics who carry the most authoritative weight in Medina, because even the hypocrites get their ammunition from the Jewish tribes. And even those who refuse to convert get their ammunition from the Jewish tribes. After all, it is the Jewish tribes who can authoritatively say whether Muhammad is real or a fraud. Then what the Quran comes, the way it speaks to the Israelites is nothing sort of startling. Because pay attention to what's saying. O Israelites, children of Israel, remember my blessings upon you. And it doesn't then use the past tense, but it says in the present tense, and fulfill my covenant, and I will fulfill my covenant with you. If Muhammad was, was any political party, you want to say Allah has a covenant with me, not with you guys. Khalas, your past, your history. But the fact that Allah comes in and even still talks to Jews as having continued relevance. For all, you know, you hear in France the, from the French government all the time, and unfortunately now in Belgium, and all, unfortunately now in, also in Switzerland, that the Quran is anti-Semitic. I will show you, if, if the only way the Quran can be anti-Semitic is the Bible is also anti-Semitic. And I'll show you this concretely. But this in itself, shows that the Qur'an doesn't have an ounce of anti-Semitism in it. Because Allah speaks to the Israelites at the time Muhammad is there and says to them, still, fulfill my covenant 
and I'll still work with you. If the, if the Quran came from a human being, this would be insane. Because you're empowering your enemies, or your opponents, or your critics. You're saying that they still have, they have still have a working covenant that they could fulfill. That's not. The, you know, we Muslims are, we didn't serve the Quran well, because if we did, the entire world would know about these remarkably moral positions that the Quran takes. It doesn't talk to Jews as, it doesn't dehumanize them. It doesn't marginalize them. It doesn't even delegitimate them. It talks about them as a people who can still fulfill a covenant with God. Okay. So, remember my blessings. Remember the past that I have with you. And remember that there is still a covenant that you could fulfill with me. Now, the idea of the covenant and what happened to the covenant was the, the, the reason that this surprised the Jewish tribes is because of what they know the Torah says about the covenant. So I'll give you just some examples. In Exodus 19.5, it says, this is the voice of God speaking, says, Now therefore, if you will obey me, the translation says, obey my voice indeed. In the, this is a very literal translation from the Hebrew. But if you will, I would have translated it as, if you would have, if you would firmly obey my will, instead of will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my beloved ones above all peoples. This is in the Bible. For all the earth is mine. The Torah is full of these references of the Israelites being chosen above all people. But, okay, now this is Leviticus 26:46 These are the commandments and the laws and judgments which the Lord made between him God and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses continuing on and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel and say to them when a man makes a special vow with the price of where's own. No, uh, sorry, let's skip over this for a second. I'll come back to it. Because I, I 
but just in, in, pay attention to this. These are the commandments and laws and judgments which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hands of Moses. I will come to the back to the rest. Okay. Now, in Jeremiah, chapter 31, starting at verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And because they nullified my covenant, so I despised them, says the Lord. So according to Jeremiah, Jews broke their covenant and God despised them. But God talks about that they will come when there will be a new covenant. Okay, Go, going on. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in the midst of them, and I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his brother and every man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the youngest of them to the eldest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their inequity, and I will remember their sins no more. Another example. This one from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, and there would have been no need for the second, for he found fault with them and said, Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will perfect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, but and because they, they abode not my covenant, I rejected them, says the Lord. For this shall be the covenant that I will make the house of Israel after the, those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will shall be my people. Then it, it, it goes on. For he has spoken of a new covenant. The fairest one has become old, and that which is old and obsolete is near destruction. So the Bible talks about an old covenant, the Torah first talks about a covenant that was broken. And the breaking of the covenant is what brought about God's anger with the children of Israel. However, according to the Torah, they remain God's chosen people. especially in the New Testament, it talks about an old covenant that was broken and a new covenant that is offered to the children of Israel that if they accept, they become God's beloved again. Christians 
read the language about the new covenant found in the New Testament as referring to accepting Jesus Christ. So the references to the new covenant that you find in the New Testament in the Christian tradition is always understood as the acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It is, however, important to keep in mind that the Torah itself was not, remember, it was not written at the time of Moses. It was written after the destruction of the Second Temple and the Diaspora. In other words, it was written in the period where Jews were horribly oppressed and dreamt of the idea or and held on steadfastly to the idea that they are God's chosen people and that if they restored their covenant with God God will free them of their oppression and restore them to what they call the promised land and this is a, a powerful ideological notion found in the Torah because the way that the Torah was written is is like the dreams of an oppressed person a people that are subjugated and a people that dream of breaking their subjugation and the idea of being God's chosen people is very essential to the preservation of and the uplifting of their soul in this state of subjugation. The New Testament comes in and reflects clearly the idea that, well, there is now Jesus and you have to accept Jesus and this is your opportunity to fulfill your covenant. But as we will see, the New Testament has some very mean things to say about the Israelites. I'll, I'll show you. The part that I skipped over is just by the way, I, I, this is material that I, just so, you know, all these Muslims who cower in shame from Islamophobia, if you only knew, if you only knew, uh, this is after the, in Leviticus, uh, uh, right after chapter tw um, 26, 46 Leviticus when um, God says that these are the commandments and laws and judgments which the Lord made between God and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. On chapter 27 Leviticus, it, start talk it starts talking about the price of selling human beings into slavery something that you wouldn't find in the Quran. So, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, 
When a man makes a special vow with the price of persons to the Lord, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. And if it is a female, then her valuation is 30 shekels. And, and if it is from five years old up to 20 years old, then the valuation of the male shall be 20 shekels. And for the female, 10 shekels. And if it is for a month old up to five years old, then the valuation of male shall be for the male five shekels of silver. And for the female, three shekels of silver. And if it is from 60 years old and up, if it is a male, his evaluation shall be 15 shekels, and for the female, 10 shekels. And if, it is, if, if he is poorer than the valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall value him according to the ability of the person who have vowed shall the priest value him. Can you imagine if this was in the Quran? All of you who sit there and give me a headache about the Quran says this, the Quran says this. Can you imagine if this was in the Quran? Can you imagine the, the, the Bible is full of things like that? Full. I can give a six month seminar on the things that could be used. If we want it to be it, either Jewish phobic or Christian phobic. But Muslims are clueless. Just, you know, ignorance is, is a horrible disease. In the same way that knowledge is an amazing strength. Because anytime anyone directs the gaze at me and says, I want to talk about why women in the Quran are blah, blah, blah. I say, okay, fine, I'll answer you. First, answer me, tell me, answer me about my questions about the Bible. But of course, you know, how, how many Christians and Jewish scholars of Islamic law and Islamic theology and Islamic history. Now, how many Muslim scholars of Christian law or Christian theology or Jewish law or Jewish theology or Christian history or Jewish history? How many professors in any of our esteemed colleges that a Muslim wouldn't even be, if, even if a Muslim specializes in this field, Good luck finding a job. It just it 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 saddens you because it's like what I was talking about in the khutbah yesterday. It, If of the the only religion that this artificial intelligence system has negative things to say about was Islam. Not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not 
Confucianism, not Judaism, not Christianity, the only religion. And the only religion that truly cannot be demonized if only people understood is Islam. So what do you do about the fact that the followers of the best religion are the worst people? What do you do? What, what do you do about it? If you, I haven't met, I'm approaching 60 years old, and I haven't met Muslims that I can count on one hand who have even studied the Bible, leave alone the Talmud, leave alone the opinions of various theologians throughout Christian history and throughout Jewish history. Meaning, I haven't met five people that can return the gaze, that can say, you want to put the Quran under a microscope? If you're going to play this game of, you know, being ahistorical and being uh, uh, bigoted and being hateful, well, first let's let's look at what your tradition says. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Muslims still exist, still think that if they can give their apologetic lectures about, oh, you don't really understand what the Quran says about polygamy, the, you know, the, the polygamy is really just, it, it's, it's completely the wrong track, the wrong methodology, the wrong approach, the, 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 the methodology of a defeated, broken people who are embarrassed to be who they are. That's not how you fight bigotry. That's not how you fight racism. Anyway. Okay. So let's go back then. So Allah begins by this startling statement to the Israelites that fulfill my covenant and I will fulfill my promises to you. وَآمِنُوا بِمَا أَنزَلْتُ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا مَعَكُمْ وَلَا تَكُونُوا أَوَّلَ كَافِرٍ بِهِ وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِهِ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا وَإِيَّايَ فَاتَّقُونَ And then, right away, Allah calls upon them and says, This message confirms what you already received. This, of course, begs the question of, well, what does the Qur'an mean by confirms what you already received? So I want to just give you an example. 
So in Deuteronomy, this is uh, Deuteronomy 18, part of the Torah. So the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee for thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And according to all that thou desire, the language of the King James Bible is, you know, desire the Lord, um, okay, let's skip them. I will raise upon them a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So, what is the issue here? In Deuteronomy, it says, I will raise among them a prophet from among their brethren, the brethren of the Israelites. What the Quran is referring to is precisely verses like this in the Torah, that the coming prophet will not be from among the Israelites, but the brethren of the Israelites. And who are the brethren of the Israelites? The Arabs. Not Ishaq, but Ismail. So, when the Quran tells them there are reports that when this ayah was revealed, 41, that, that the Jews in Medina were shocked that the Quran made a reference that they understood as referring to Deuteronomy, the, the brethren verse. And they go to the prophet and say, who told you? And they go to, um, what was his name? I forgot. Um, they go to Kaab. Um, what, what, what was his name? I don't know. Yeah, uh, Kaab ibn, ibn al-Ashraf. Yeah, that was his name. And they go to Kaab ibn al-Ashraf and say, did you tell him that Deuteronomy said that the prophet to come will be from among the brethren of the Israelites? And whether these reports are authentic or not, that's, that's not the point. The, the point is to understand the ideological interaction that is taking place. And that the Quran is referring to something in the Torah itself that the coming prophet is going to be from among the brethren of the Israelites, not the Israelites. And the Israelites themselves have been telling Arabs that the coming prophet is going to be certainly an Israelite. Okay. So then, ولا تشتروا بآياتي ثمنا قليلا وإياي فت فتقون. 
So do not barter away my message with a trifling gain and uh, and of me be conscious for and be conscious of me. Again, the reference here is that you Jews of Medina, the reason that you keep insisting that the coming prophet is an Israelite and not as the Torah says is going to be not among the Israelites, but a brother of the Israelites, is because you have invested material interest in refusing to follow this prophet. So when it says, do not barter away my message with a tiffling gain, you know, stop being stubborn and acknowledge what you yourself amongst yourself know to be true okay ولا تلبسوا الحق بالباطل وتكتموا الحق وانتم تعلمون and do not overlay the truth with falsehood and not knowingly suppress the truth again the reference to knowingly suppress the truth talks about the same issue okay and be constant in prayer and spend in charity okay so what as some commentators in the Islamic tradition noted not too many unfortunately but people like Zamakhshari for instance notice this that How you're talking to opponents and you are telling them you know what the truth is and you know this point about that this the coming prophet is not going to be an Israelite and here is this prophet and you hide what Deuteronomy and there's a couple of other places where it says the same thing but I didn't mark them. I didn't have time to do it for the halakha. So don't conceal it. But then it comes and says to them, it's like, don't conceal it and be righteous. Be righteous how? Pray and Pay zakah, and here the reference is not to the zakah that that what the the percentage two and a half percent that Muslims pay. Zakah here refers to sadaqah. Again, if this was a human, um, if this was a human engagement, you wouldn't care if your opponent is praying or giving alms because you are not you wouldn't be concerned about the moral uprightness or moral uprightness of your opponent but an, a divine author is yeah even if you don't become muslim at least speak the truth stop going around and telling the hypocrites and those who don't they, they want to believe that 
the next prophet cannot be an Arab. Speak the truth and hold on to prayer and pay alms. Maybe you'll be fine with Allah. Maybe that will be keeping your covenant with Allah. And that will protect your position with Allah. And this is then further confirmed in the next ayah. أَتَأْمُرُونَ النَّاسَ بِالْبِرِّ وَتَنْسَوْنَ أَنفُسَكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ تَتْلُونَ الْكِتَابِ أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ Amazing. Do you call upon people to be pious and good while you forget yourselves? So in other words, you, you speak ethical language but you yourselves, you're not performing these ethics. Yet you recite Kitab, yet you recite the holy book, yet you are or is or that you have knowledge of the book. Don't you use your reason? This is not again, this is not the 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 um, rhetoric of human opponent. But the language of, of a supreme being that knows what is in the divine writ and that looks inside themselves and lays it bare. Okay. وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَالصَّلَاةِ and be steadfast in patience and prayer. And this is indeed a hard thing except for al-khashi'een, khashi'een, those who are God-fearing and humble and morally uh, and, and morally righteous. So, what is the hard thing to do unless you are among the Khashi'in? Allah refers to it as it is truly a challenge. What is the challenge? The challenge is precisely what the Quran invites the Israelites to do. And that is to admit the truth even if the truth doesn't serve their material interests. Allah knew fully well that for the Israelites to come and say, yeah, you know what? we know that the coming prophet is going to be a brethren of the Israelites, an Arab, in other words. And we know that this whole chosen people thing is no longer valid. What's can you imagine that you know if you put your place in the in the in the put yourself in the place of these Jewish tribes? 
Would you have the guts to do that? Because even if they don't convert to Islam, Allah is telling them, admit it and pray and pay alms, in other words, be ethically, morally righteous people. By that time, the, the business practices, business practices alone in Medina were thoroughly corrupt. Remember, what was the revelation right before the Hijrah? Hitting directly at the prevailing moral bankruptcy in Medina. Who were the people that made a commitment for a moral transformation? It was also converted to Islam. The old guard were the people who wanted to continue doing things the way that they've been done for a very long time. In other words, these people are seeing things transform. There's a revolution taking place in front of them. This revolution is headed by the Muhajireen and the Ansar. And this revolution, this moral revolution, ethical revolution, is leaving those who refuse, who refuse to become Muslim or the so-called hypocrites, those who said they converted but not really, and anyone that is continuing to be, to hold on to the old ways behind. And that's why it is such a remarkably difficult challenge. And that's also why the Quran doesn't come and say, you know, just promise allegiance to Muhammad or, you know, drop your weapons and surrender your weapons and go tell Muhammad we will do whatever you want. It emphasizes morality and honesty in discourse. In part, I have to confess something to you. In part, I am somewhat indebted to Islamophobes because Islamophobes, especially European Islamophobes, as opposed to American ones, especially the ones who write in French, love, love to harp on Surah Al-Baqarah. And when I read enough, a long time ago when I was younger and more patient, I used to re read so many of the Islamophobic books that, that kept being published. Every time an Islamophobic book would be published, I would read it. And that, reading enough of these French morons, because they are morons, in part is what made me delve so deeply into Surah Al-Baqarah and what Surah Al-Baqarah was saying to Jews and the circumstances in Medina. Okay. Then 
children of Israel this is now 47 O children of Israel remember my blessings unto you and that I favored you above all other people is this the concept of the chosen people no I favored you above all other people in sending Moses to the Israelites to free them from their captivity as we will see that it is a, a people have been oppressed for a very long time held in captivity descendants of Israel of Israel himself and Allah sends a descendant of Yehuda to free the Israelites from their captivity that is that is an act of favoring people Allah favored the Qurayshis by sending to them Muhammad whoever Allah sends a messenger to Allah has favored okay what taku yawman la tajdi nafsun an nafsin shay'a wa la yuqbalu minha shafa'atun wa la yu'khadu minha adlun wa la hum yunsarun so and pay attention to the language he's this is 48 and remain conscious of the day when human beings shall no human shall, being shall avail another nor shall there be intercession accepted from any of them nor a ransom taken the emphasis on the individual accountability clashed directly with what as we will see with what Jews were saying about what God will do with with them in the hereafter that the chosen people even if they go to hell their punishment in hell is not going to be serious or severe the emphasis appear again and again on the Quran on the idea that there is no absolution from sin and that no one will absolve another from their sins and no one will take the sins of another from them clash directly with both Jewish doctrine and Christian doctrine at the time okay وَإِذْ أَنْجَيْنَاكُمْ مِنْ آلِ فِرْعَوْنَ يَسُومُونَكُمْ سُوءَ الْعَذَابِ يُذَبِّحُونَ أَبْنَاءَكُمْ وَيَسْتَحْيُونَ نِسَاءَكُمْ وَفِي ذَلِكُمْ بَلَاءٌ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ عَظِيمٌ And remember, when we saved you from Pharaoh's people, or the people of the Pharaoh, who afflicted you who tortured you and made you suffer greatly and who treated you cruelly 
and who slaughtered your sons and spared only your women. And in this is, ser is indeed a serious trial and a serious test. And then, وَإِذْ فَرَقْنَا بِكُمُ الْبَحْرِ فَأَنْجَيْنَاكُمْ وَأَغْرَقْنَا آلِ فِرْعَانُ وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُونَ When we um, uh, cleft the sea before you and drowned Pharaoh and his people as you watched the well-known miracle. وَإِذْ وَعَدْنَا مُوسَى أَرْبَعِينَ لَيْلَةً ثُمَّ اتَّخَذْتُمُ الْعِجْلَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِ وَأَنْتُمْ ظَالِمُونَ Okay, so now... Surah Al-Baqarah is going to start talking about the faults that I mentioned earlier. So, first, Moses is called, and we've talked about this before because we, the Quran dealt with it before, that Moses goes for 40 days to the mount where he receives the Ten Commandments. And as we said before, when he returns, he finds that his people had reverted back to a form of idol worshipping. And the idol worshipping that they had adopted was in part, according to different reports, because they were, they, when Moses was late, they feared that Moses was lost, that he was dead. Some even said that they prayed to the calf to intercede on, on their behalf to, for God to save Moses and bring back Moses safely. There are many conflicting reports about this, but it is a golden calf that is taken or they revert to in, their, in, in the form of idol worshipping. Now, of course, this is a reversion to the culture of their oppressor. Because reverence of animal forms built out of gold was a culturally, a cultural practice in ancient Egypt at the time that was very well established. Until now, if you, you know, the representations of these types of, they, they weren't considered gods, but they were considered um, reverential objects that interceded on behalf of human beings with gods. But there would always be animal forms built out of gold. So it was, they reverted back to the norms and cultural practices of their oppressors. And, uh, and we'll see this point is developed in a second. This is 54. So what is the Quran referring to here? First, it is referring to an event, and again, because Islamophobes 
believe it or not, Anyway, yeah, because this is one of the things that the Islamophobes cite about the Quran. Oh, it told Jews to kill themselves. Okay, so this is Exodus chapter 32. It says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said, Moses said, unto them, to the sons of Levi, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people dead that day about 3,000 men. So, this reference to Tulu and Fusakum, many commentators understood it as referring to this event in the Bible. It's not, the Quran didn't invent it. That Moses, when he comes back from the mount, says, who Who will come join me? And the people and sons of Levi join him. And then he sends the sons of Levi to slaughter their fellow Israelites after they had repented or after they had atoned of the sin of worshiping the calf. And according to the Bible, this resulted in 3,000 people slaughtered that day. However, and this is a big however, a number of Quranic commentators said it doesn't make sense one that the account in the Bible is among the accounts that are um, unjustifiably bloody and murders. So they worship the calf. Moses comes back, gets angry. They re they re they abandon worshiping the calf. And ask God to forgive them. And the seminary or the person who led the movement to worship the calf is punished in the Bible. He's tortured and killed in, in the Quran. It says, Lama says, which means he was exiled. 
in the Bible, it refers to the sons of one of the tribes slaughtering their fellow Israelites. Why? Because God said so. And commentators like Arazi said, that doesn't make sense. If God forgave them, why would God... So they rejected the biblical account. And in fact, some said that the, the, the um, insertion of the biblical account in the Islamic tradition was through the Israelite tradition. So those who said that they converted to Islam, Jews who converted to Islam. And argued that faqtulu and fuzakum doesn't mean that God had anyone actually killed or had anyone kill anyone. And also rejected the idea that God said or commit suicide. Although the commit suicide is not in the Bible, but some commentators said, well, you know, it can't be the account in the Bible, so it must mean then God told them, you know, commit suicide. And some commentators said that God said, commit suicide to just see if any of them are actually going to prove their conviction by showing that they're willing to do it, and then God intervened in the last minute and said, well, I don't really mean it. I don't really don't want you to kill yourself. But again, the proof for that tradition, for these traditions, uh, is rather weak, meaning that nothing authentic supports that allegation. So some argued, which I agree with, that Faktunu and Fusakum was a reference to a different procedure that was known as a form of death at the time of the Israelites. And that is, the best word for it is uh, self-mortification. When you denounce yourself as having sinned, and some some say that the, that the procedure involved hailing, taking dust and hailing it on your head as a sign of shame. Till today, by the way, you'll still find in some traditional Arab societies when women lose a loved one, they'll grab dust and hail it on their head it goes all the way back to the Israelites, which reportedly the Israelites got it from the Egyptians, by the way, Allahu Alam, where, where the Egyptians got it from. But that, the, that you, and it wasn't done back then, just when, as it is now, when you lose a loved one and you are wailing, but it was rather done when you committed a major sin and you are displaying your repentance in front of people. So you take dust and you cry and you put it on your head and 
then you are shunned. People shun you. Until society accepts your repentance and your regret. I agree with the Quranic commentators that said Fakturu and Fusakum refer to that. The idea that God said, well, commit suicide and then intervened the last second and said, I don't mean it, would make sense if we had a reliable tradition that supported it. But from my study, I didn't find a reliable tradition. That it's referring to what the Bible says, the sons of Levi go slaughtering people, it doesn't it mean Cthulhu and Fusakum, then that expression doesn't fit. It doesn't say, then God told them, kill the offenders. Fakhtulu and Fusakum. And this is not unusual in the Quran. When we read the Quran with modern standards of Arabic and ignore the historical context, we end up with some very bizarre results, as so many Muslims do in the modern age. So if, you know, there is this movement now in, in France that the, the Quran has to be, any printing of the Quran has to exclude all the uh, so-called um, anti-Semitic parts. And much of what they're talking about is Surah Al-Baqarah. And one of the parts that they're talking about excluding is this. And my response always is, sure, do it only if you're going to do the same thing to the Bible. Because as I show you, as I'll show you, the, the, the Bible goes far beyond anything that you find in the Quran. It's just that Muslims don't read and don't study and don't learn languages and don't take their religion seriously and don't take their mission in life seriously. And they think that they can live life just whining and complaining and then die. You know, talking about how horrible Muslims are and how horrible everything is, is not paying your dues. It's not going to vindicate you before God. I think God is impressed if you spend time reading something, if you spend time learning Hebrew. God is impressed if you spend time learning Greek, if you spend time learning Aramaic. God is impressed if you study, spend time working, exerting yourself, exhausting yourself. That's impressive. But sitting on the net and spewing stuff that you have no clue about is nothing. Okay, let's go back. You know what, actually, let's take a, a three minute break. Uh, because when I talk about stuff like that, my blood pressure shoots up and, and I need to calm down a bit. So, three minute break, sorry. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ya Rabb. Wa salli wa sallim. Wa salli wa sallim wa barik. Ala Muhammad ya Rabb.
Okay. I just, in, in the break, I just chatting with Grace and Joe and Cheyenne. And, and, and I want to say something just for the recording, for history. One per personal. The, the reason that you see me get emotional when I'm talking about these things is that I remember the years of study, the hours, the, 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 the long hours, the thousands upon thousands of dollars spent on books and knowledge and the long hours of study and and these are the same time, the same time, the same time that people spent attending Islamic conferences, going to Ikna and Isna and Shura councils, and I don't know what. And and, and you you um, you pause at a certain point and you say, "Where are my fellow Muslims?" We are the we are the people of the book. We are the people that Allah from the very beginning told us that the key is knowledge. From the very first revelation. The other point I I want to make, which is not personal, notice that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse 48 that comes directly and rejects the very doctrine of vicarious redemption by rejecting the doctrine of vicarious redemption, you've rejected the doctrine of a chosen people, you've rejected the doctrine of a the Jesus suffering for the sins of people. But Joe made a point that I really like. You've also affirmed at the same time that you can become the chosen people by simply fulfilling the terms of the covenant. Anyone can become the chosen people by fulfilling the terms of the covenant, which is remarkable, especially when you, when you remember that the whole the whole tradition of Christian anti-Semitism is precisely 
founded on the, the, the whole biblical narrative about Jews betraying the covenant and the seven, second covenant becoming redemption in Jesus. Islam comes and completely uproots, I mean, it, it, it undermines the very idea that would have empowered Christian anti-Semitism by coming in and saying, no, do your prayers, do the zakah, be honest in discourse, and as we'll see in Surah Al-Baqarah itself, and you may in fact receive God's covenant. So it is everyone can become a chosen people if they do fulfill the terms of the covenant. Okay. So we talked about, so we get to um, Okay. This is 54. Okay. Then, When you, a number of Israelites, went back and and here you know the the the, the medieval mind or, or the, the the medieval um tendency to want to worship something seen and concrete that's the entire if even if you read the 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 old testament the Old Testament repeatedly talks about the Israelites returning to idolatry. Well, idolatry, the whole basis or state of mind that kept people coming back to idolatry is that you needed to worship something concrete that interceded on your behalf with God. So the fact that some Israelites go back to Moses and say, how can we worship what we don't see? We need to see God. If we can't worship an idol that intercedes with God, then at a minimum, we need to see God. And that God then punished them or put the fear of God into them uh, with a saqa means a thunderbolt. So there was some natural event that terrified them uh, and that communicated to them that this is not this is not what God finds acceptable. Okay. ثُمَّ بَعَثْنَاكُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَوْتِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ وَظَلَّلْنَا عَلَيْكُمُ الْغَمَامَ وَانْزَلْنَا عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَنَّ وَالسَّلْوَى 
وكلوا من طيبات ما رزقناكم وما ظلمونا ولكن كانوا أنفسهم يظلمون. Okay, so this is 58 and 57. First, the trans the the um, straightforward translations. Okay, so. But we raised you again after you had been as dead, so that you might have, have cause to be grateful. And we caused the clouds to comfort you with their shade, and sent down unto you manna and quails. Manna, manna, manna. Saying, partake of good things which we have provided for you as sustenance. And by all their sinning, they did no harm unto us, but only against their own selves did they sin. Okay, um, the reason I'm going to pause here is to explain something in the traditional tefasir. The traditional tefasir come here, and they are full of narratives, partly taken, taken from the Talmud, not the Torah, that this reference, Summa Ba'athnakum min Ba'di Mautikum, this is 56, La'allakum Tashkurun, that say that the thunderbolt that came upon the Israelites killed a whole bunch of them and that God brought them back to life as a miracle and that after God brought them back to life they enjoyed what the Quran refers to as al-manna wa salwa which in the tafsir you find a great deal written about what manna and salwa means um, now None of the traditions that talk about Israelites dying from a sa'aqa, from that thunderbolt, and being brought back to life are reliable traditions. All of them belong to the body of literature known as the Israelite traditions meaning that in the transmission of these traditions are individuals who converted to Islam, whose conversion was suspect, and who copied from either the Torah or the Talmud into the interpretation of the Quran certain narratives. Again, we go back to the issue of what Maut refers to in the context of the Israelites from in commentators like Muhammad Abdu, who's a modern, or Abdul Wahab al-Najjar, who's also a modern figure, to older commentators like Zamakhshari, who said that the reference in the Quran 
that we brought you back after your death is not necessarily bringing back the dead bringing back the dead to life or resurrection but that it refers to the death of the mind and the heart that being in a state in a, in a state of rebellion against Allah in Quranic discourse is often referred to as either zulumat or a form of death and that when Allah says that we brought you back after your death and give, gave you manna wa salwa is that we brought back brought you back to guidance after having lost guidance i think that makes that at least i'm far more comfortable with that than relying on the israelite traditions that says that a whole bunch of israelites died and then were resurrected back again because for such a claim, it's not that, I, you know, if you believe in God splitting the sea and you believe in God putting the people in the cave to sleep for many years and then bringing them back, it's not that you put it beyond God. If God wanted to kill a bunch of people and then bring them back to life, fine. But for that type of claim, I need something reliable. I need traditions that I can point to that are sufficiently reliable to say, okay, this is something I have to accept as a matter of faith. But since I don't have something like that, then I am willing to understand, I'm willing to resort to metaphorical meaning. Because if God wanted me to believe I mean all of these people dying and being resurrected is a miracle that is as big as splitting the Red Sea and why isn't this miracle then supported in the authentic tradition of the Prophet and clearly spelled out in the Quran so that's why I'm willing to accept a metaphorical interpretation rather than a literal one. Okay. Okay, so moving on. وَإِذْ قُلْنَا ادْخُلُوا هَذِهِ الْقَرْيَةَ فَكُلُوا مِنْهَا حَيْثُ شِئْتُمْ رَغَدًا وَادْخُلُوا الْبَابَ سُجَّدًا وَقُولُوا حِطَّةٌ نَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ خَطَيَاكُمْ وَسَنَزِيدُ الْمُحْسِنِينَ now this 58, and of course, note in Surah Al-Baqarah, I'm not going to go verse by verse from beginning to end. I'm doing this only with the, the verses dealing with the Israelites. So 58, and remember, when we said, enter this land and eat of its food as you may desire abundantly, and enter the gate humbly, and say, remove though from us the burden of our sins, and we shall forgive you your sins and shall amply reward the doers of good. Now, this is a something really important to underscore 
what is this land that they are told to enter? It's Palestine. So notice here that the Bible, if you read the story of the entry of the Israelites to Palestine, in the Bible, it's a very violent, bloody story. God supposedly tells the Israelites, enter this land, slaughter whoever you want, enslave whoever is before you, and live there. The Quran's treatment is entirely different. وَإِذَا قُلْنَا ادْخُلُوا هَذِهِ الْقَرِيَةِ فَكُلُوا مِنْهَا حَيْثُ شِئْتُمْ رَغْدًا So, enter, make a living for yourself. كُلُوا مِنْهَا حَيْثُ شِئْتُمْ رَغْدًا means, find, make a livelihood. But, وَادْخُلُوا الْبَابَ سُجَّدًا وَقُولُوا حِطَّةً نَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ خَطَايَاكُمْ so enter this land humbly, not violently, not as conquerors, but as guests. When you find Muslims, unfortunately, there are Muslims today in the Emirat and even in Saudi and even in Egypt, that moron, forgot his name, um, that say, uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, yes, Palestine is a promised land of the Israelites, even the Quran says that. The Quran actually doesn't say that at all. The idea of the promised land for the Israelites doesn't exist in the Quran. The Quran says, enter this land, live in it humbly, The author, there is a link that tells you that there is a common thread between the author of the Quran and the author of the Torah and the author of the Injil. But the differences also tell you that it was not a process of someone copying from one source to another. Because the differences are startling. I'll show you many other examples, Allah. So, so, I underscore this because of the, the confusion in the minds of some Muslims in our modern day and age. Enter this land after being lost, as we will see in, in a second. After being lost in Sinai for 40 years, it lost in the desert as a punishment. And according to many sources, Moses dies during those years in Sinai. The period of the, the 
period, the plight period, or the period of banishment, ends by God saying, here is this land, settle in it, but settle in it humbly. وَقُولُوا حِطَّةً means repent. And if you do so, if you have a re the, the attitude, repenting attitude, a the attitude of, of, of atonement and humility, we will forgive your sins. Okay. فَبَدَّلَ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا قَوْلًا غَيْرَ الَّذِي قِيلَ لَهُمْ فَانْذَنَّا عَلَى الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا رِجْسًا مِنَ السَّمَاءِ بِمَا كَانُوا يَفْسُقُونَ this is 59 now. So, but those who were bent on evil doing substituted another saying for that which have been given them. And so we sent down upon those evildoers a plague from heaven in requital for their inequity. So, God's disappointment is that when uh, we we don't know we uh, if in the biblical narrative some of the Israelites do go into Palestine they don't abide by the attitude that God decreed for them now what is the attitude when it says they didn't abide by the terms. Well, the, the most obvious answer is that it said settle in this land humbly, not violently. So, the biblical descriptions of the slaughter committed by the Israelites in Allah's name is one way that is one way that they actually violated what Allah commanded them. But more than that, in my opinion, the very idea of the promised land is the very claim that God promised this land to them to the exclusion of others including those who already lived there. What is the Quran saying is that you, you didn't follow my instructions. You've corrupted my instructions. Well, isn't a promised land the corruption of God's instructions? Because it's nowhere in the Quran. And it is forcibly there in the Bible. That's another topic. وَإِذْ قُلْتُمْ يَا مُوسَى لَنْ نَصْبِرَ عَلَى طَعَامٍ وَاحِدٍ فَادْعُ لَنَا رَبَّكَ يُخْرِجُ لَنَا مِمَّا تُنْبِتُ الْأَرْضُ مِنْ بَقَلِهَا وَقِثَائِهَا 
وفومها وعدسها وبصلها قال أتستبدلون الذي هو أدنى بالذي هو خير اهبطوا مصر فإن لكم ما سألتم وضربت عليهم الزلة والمسكنة وباءوا بغضب من الله ذلك بأنهم كانوا يكفرون بآيات الله ويقتلون النبيين بغير الحق ذلك بما عصوا وكانوا يعتدون Okay, so this is now 60 and 61. So what's going on here? The Quran doesn't tell you, it's not a book of history, or it's not like the Bible, it doesn't have a historical narrative. The Quran gives historical examples to make a moral point. So it's jumped forward and talked about when God told them, enter this land, settle in it, and that they didn't follow God's instructions, and that was another point where they broke the covenant with God. But then it goes back again and talks about the period that preceded that, and says, this is during the, the time that they are going to be lost in Sina. And Allah empowers Musa السلام, to perform a miracle. And the miracle, as I said, is that striking with his, with his um, cane or his stick and there are 12 flowing or 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 12 um, uh, um, fountains or 12 uh, what do you call them springs, uh, springs of water uh, 12 springs that gush out and Moses assigns among the Israelites particular clans to particular springs. So this clan and this clan will will use this spring, this clan and this clan will use the spring. SubhanAllah, these springs ex still exist till today in Egypt. They're dried up. They no longer flow with water. And when I saw them, the saddest thing is that there was one spring that was very clean and was gated as for tourists and the other springs there were heaps of garbage dumped in these springs i kid you not the garbage went all the way you could see that it, it, like it, i don't know how deep the spring is but all the way to to the top and yeah i mean uh, the other thing I remember is that when the the spring that was open to tourists, um, there were Christian evangelical groups, tons of them, around the spring, basically hugging each other and singing Christian songs, um, biblical songs. 
And so you, you felt that you're not in the tourist spot. You felt like you're in, um, I don't know, in, in, in the midst of like, everyone there was white. Everyone there was fanatically Christian. Um, they, they kept, I don't know, you know, the entire time I was there, and I was there for a few hours, they kept singing Christian songs. Anyway, so, now, notice, so Allah tells them, here's these springs that is going to sustain them in Sina, before Palestine. This is another, again, this is 60. And do not spread, do not plunder and spread corruption on earth. A direct reference to what will happen in Palestine later, according to the Bible. So that the prescription is because the Quran, when you invade and you kill and you slaughter and you enslave, that's corruption on earth. And, okay. Now, we come to 61. What is going on in 61? So first, the translation. And remember when you said, Moses, we cannot endure but one kind of food. Pray then to your sustainer that will bring forth for us out of what grows from the earth of its herbs, its cucumbers, its garlic, its lentils, its onions. And then Joseph Moses says, would you take a lesser thing in exchange for what is so much better Go back in shame to Egypt, and then you can have what you are asking for. And so ignominy well, and humiliation overshadowed them, and they earned the burden of God's condemnation. All this because they persisted in denying the truth of God's message and in slaying the prophets against all right. All this because they rebelled against God and persisted in transgression and the bounds of what is right. Okay. So, after being in Sina, having the springs of water, with the springs of water and in desert, in the desert meant, is that the food that you can grow in the desert is limited and your lifestyle in the desert compared to towns is harsh. What the Jews enjoyed, what the Israelites enjoyed in with Moses was their freedom. But their lifestyle was harsh. And what the Israelites were at least many of the Israelites started complaining about is telling Moses you brought us out here in the desert our life 
before you was better. And in this is a lesson, if only Muslims reflected on it and absorbed it and understood it. These people had been subjugated for ages. They became accustomed to being subservient. You know, when slaves were freed, right? The slaves that worked in the fields valued their freedom. The slaves who didn't want to leave their masters were the slaves that lived in the master's home and served the master. Because those slaves got accustomed. Yes, they were slaves. Yes, they lived subservient. Yes, they suffered racism. But they got accustomed to a style of life to a certain level of comfort and stability. Freedom was not attractive. Similarly, what happened here is that after being liberated, many of these Israelites eventually got tired of the harshness of life in the desert and told Moses, okay, you got us our freedom, but our life didn't improve. Our material life didn't improve. And look at what Moses tells him in response. Would you take a lesser thing in exchange for what is so much better? And Moses tells him, okay, you missed your life in Egypt, you, live, you missed your life of servitude, you miss the comforts you had in Egypt, although you were slaves. Okay, fine, go back to Egypt. And indeed, many of them returned to Egypt to voluntarily go back into slavery. And by doing so, they earned God's wrath and anger. Now, Let's see what the Bible says. So, this is Numbers chapters 11. 
The Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee. In the Bible, God says, I will come down and talk with thee there. And I will take the take of the spirit which is upon thee and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee. And thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh, meaning ye will eat meat. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, You shall give us flesh to eat. Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt, and therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. And ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten nor twenty days, but even a whole month, and until it come out at your nostrils. And it will be loathsome unto you, because you have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? So, the biblical account that you see in Numbers, if you followed what I've read, the biblical account that you find in Numbers is that they complained that when they were in Egypt, they were eating meat. And now we're in the desert, we're not eating meat. So God said, I will come down. And when I come down among you, I will have you eating meat until this meat comes out of your nostrils. Meaning you will become sick of eating meat. Why am I going to make you sick of eating meat? Because you are complaining that your life in Egypt was much better. Notice the difference between the Quranic account and the biblical account. The Quranic account doesn't have God coming down. The Quranic account, their complaint is that their life in Egypt was more comfortable and they ate a variety of foods. Again, for you Muslims who hear things like, oh, you know, the, the Quran just borrowed from the Bible. The differences are startling. The author of the Quran was there. The Bible talks about eating meat until you eat so much meat it's going to come out of your nostrils. The Quran doesn't mention meat at all. It mentions cucumbers and onions, the, the types of things that Egyptian diet actually relied on. And in the Quran, God says, fine, you want to be slaves and have a better life? Go ahead. In the Bible, God is angry at them, but 
God is angry at them because they demand to eat meat and complain that Moses brought them out of Egypt. The lesson in the Quran is about servitude and living with dignity. If people understood just this, just this, Muslims would refuse to live in servitude anywhere. Because the Quran clearly says, okay, so, you know, after all of this, you're saying, oh, you know, our life was more comfortable. We had, vari we had variety. We had, basically, we had more material things in Egypt. You know, our life was easier. There was more luxury. Things were more comfortable. And if you see what you, the, the clear message from the Quran is, no, your freedom is more important. Okay, you want to live degraded and humiliated? Go ahead. But you've earned God's anger by agreeing to live in servitude. Now, this message for Muslims in Medina was not lost on them. Who else have left a better lifestyle and the comfort and come to a very hard life? Muslims in Medina, the immigrants. It wasn't lost on them. It's lost on us, modern Muslims, because we're losers. But it wasn't lost on them. Jews, the Israelites, violated the covenant, or at least those who went back to servitude in Egypt after all the miracles because they, they couldn't handle a rough lifestyle. Earn God's wrath. Muslims got the message loud and clear. No. An easier lifestyle is not an excuse for servitude. And that's why I keep saying Islam was a revolutionary liberation, message of liberation. Okay. And the language here is amazing. Do you know who else? This description, this perfectly describes Muslims living under authoritarian regimes today. If I wanted, I couldn't find a better Two words to describe the life of people living under dictatorships. Zilla and Maskana. Zilla, degradation. Maskana is when you live, you know, hunched down and in servitude, no dignity. 
constantly receiving orders and commands and just you know looking right in front of you not noticing any injustices anything amazing description mind-boggling it's like Egyptians living under the the totalitarian regime in Egypt Zilla and Maskana Syrians Zilla and Maskana Saudis Zilla and Maskana Persians Iranians Zilla and Maskana everywhere you turn Muslims living under Zilla and Maskana it's terrifying it has to grab your attention and wake you up and then on top of that and on top of that they earn God's wrath it's a God doesn't answer their prayers anymore okay now in 61 when we have the reference to okay fine go back to Egypt in shame and you can have what you ask for but yet their fate was one of humiliation and degradation because they've accepted that unto themselves um, and this rather see the reference the reference in 61 and in slaying the prophets against all right and then it, of course it continues and because and, and persisted in transgressing the bounds of what is right now this reference to the Israelites killing prophets of God Um, in Surah Al-Baqarah it's repeated again in verse 87 where it says أَفَكُلَّمَا جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ بِمَا لَا تَهْوَى أَنفُسَكُمْ اسْتَكْبَرْتُمْ فَفَرِيقًا كَذَّبْتُمْ وَفَرِيقًا تَقْتُلُونَ God speaking to the Israelites and says that every time God sends a prophet to you that you don't like, some you deny and others you kill. I flag this because again, if you have if you keep track of the Islamophobic literature and even the non-Islamophobic literature meaning 
writings of Orientalists that camouflage as, as serious academic works, you will often read that the Quran accuses the Israelites of killing prophets and uh, that's such a horrible, unprecedented accusation that the Quran levels against the Israelites. And in Islamic phobic literature, it's often cited as example of it, the Quran, Quran's anti-Semitism. And again, in French Islamophobia, is there's the that argument that the Quran if must be if it's if it's to be printed at all in France, then these references to the Israelites killing prophets must be removed. Well, in fact, this is not a Quranic um, accusation because you find it in the Bible in many places. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In Matthew, no, sorry, yeah. Yeah, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, says, Wherefore, behold, I sent unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. Of some of them ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachas, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, though that kills the prophets and stoneth them, which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, and even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. So this is an example of the biblical narrative, which, if you notice, has remarkable similarity. Which says, um, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Also, in Elsewhere in the Bible, this is um, Thessalonians chapter 2, 
15. It says, again, speaking to the Israelites, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, and for the rest is come upon them to the uttermost. And then it goes on with... So, again, you, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't say it's in the Qur'an. And, of course, clearly it's not in the Qur'an exclusively, as some Orientalists have claimed. And it is not an accusation that was invented by the Qur'an. And clearly, if you talk about, you, you can't play the double game of, oh, you know, we're going to just focus on the Qur'an as a problematic text. But of course, no one ever talks about the Bible. Nevertheless, the idea that pre people in the past, and not just the Israelites, have killed prophets, is a common theme both in the Bible and in the Quran. And that prophets, just because, I mean, Muslims, often because all they know about the story of prophets are the famous ones, the, you know, Joseph, Moses, Jesus, and so on. And these stories don't have, and they, they, they think that all prophets are saved like Abraham, or as most Muslims believe was Jesus, that, they're, that this holds true to prophets across the board. Well, that's not true. The Qur'an itself and the Bible refer to many previous prophets who are killed by past nations uh, on numerous occasions. Okay, just something to note as we're... Okay, so moving on. Then, 62, right after we are told about the group that returned to Egypt and accepted servitude and earned God's wrath, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَالَّذِينَ هَادُوا وَالنَّصَارَى وَالصَّابِئِينَ من آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وعمل صالحا فلهم أجرهم عند ربهم ولا خوف عليهم ولا هم يحزنون. Those who attained to face and were guided as well as those who follow the Jewish faith and the Christians and the Sabians. The, the Sabians is a bit complicated who the Sabians were, but anyway. 
all who believe in God and last day and do righteous deed shall have their reward with their sustainer and no fear need they have, neither shall they grieve. It is remarkable that at this point, this message is explicitly spelled out in the Quran at a time when you want you want to encourage everyone to follow Muhammad but the Quran comes in and says Christians, Jews and Sabians and there were very very few Sabians uh, as who the Quran is referring to or that group of people who believed in Abraham and were monotheists they're not to be confused with the Sabians of Iraq anyway that those of them who believe and do good deeds live righteously will have their reward now this ayah and other verses like it in the Quran is often argued to have been abrogated. And so you find many traditional Muslims, if you cite this verse to them, they'll tell you, oh, this was abrogated and it's by this and such verse. And we'll come to these other verses, inshallah. But what I want to underscore here, because we are going to come upon the abrogation verse in a second, or in a little bit, is that there is a methodological error in textual reading because of the tendency to read the Quran as ayah, separate, ayah by ayah by ayah, and to then, when you find what appears like an inconsistency between a later ayah and an earlier ayah, to say the later ayah abrogated the earlier ayah. But if you are, let's assume that you are reading a philosophical text, or reading even a scientific text. If you are reading this text and you know that at the beginning it said a proposition, whatever that proposition is, then as you're reading you find another proposition that related to the earlier proposition but seems to differ from it in one regard or another. And you go on reading to, in the text and you find a third proposition that related to the two earlier ones but differed from it in one way or another. And you go on reading in the text and you find a fourth proposition related to the earlier three but different from it in one way or the other. In every other text, what your mind does is that it 
goes from the earlier proposition and sees the second proposition as an elaboration. In other words, as you you don't cancel the earlier proposition, but you consider the second proposition in light of what you read earlier about the same matter. And then you consider the third in light of what you read about the first two, and then you consider the fourth, and you consider the fourth in light of what you've read in the first three. And each proposition is layered upon the earlier one as a further elaboration. So you don't say that the author has canceled now I can X out page on chapter 1 because the page on chapter 2 contradicted the page on chapter 1 but you actually understand the argument cumulatively and the intellectual challenge if you're using your brain is to say okay since I know this is a good author an author that doesn't just contradict herself or himself how can I understand all the propositions as a further elaboration is subtlety upon the theme a variation upon the theme and in fact if I am having a hard time understanding the third proposition in light of the earlier two for example then I must have missed something then I as a reader I am missing something is not that the author has changed his mind or is confused this is precisely my approach in the Quran The idea that Allah has this in Surah Al-Baqarah and then we read something in a later surah that we think is inconsistent with what Surah Al-Baqarah 62 says. So we say, well, 62 must have been abrogated. I think is unbecoming of the way we deal with the divine author. A divine author doesn't work that way. The challenge is for us to understand what comes later in the Quran if it seems in any way to contradict what came earlier in the Quran. The onus, the burden is on us as readers to declare that Allah is being inconsistent and thus resort to the principle of abrogation is a cop-out. And indeed, there isn't a single time where I have not, there isn't a single time when I have, when I did, uh, um, 
where I failed to delve more deeply into an area where I have not discovered further elaboration upon the theme. There are too many negatives in this statement, but anyway. So in every single time that I have dealt more deeply into a later revelation, the understanding the later revelation in light of the earlier revelation became very obvious and very clear without resort to the intellectually lazy cop-out of Nasr. Because 62, like all other Quranic pronouncements, remains valid. And remains valid in light of everything else that is revealed after Surah Al-Baqarah. And it's actually reaffirmed in the Quran more than one, more than one time. So it is significant that at the same time that the Quran is telling the Israelites the ways that they breached the covenant and that they are not God's chosen people or alternatively that anyone can become God's chosen people by fulfilling God's covenant that God comes out and says to them those who are Jewish and follow the Jewish faith meaning not just ethnically Jewish but actually believe in Judaism those who are followers of the Jewish faith those who are Christian those who are Sabians, within the meaning of what the Quran refers to as Sabians at the time, if they believe and do righteous deeds, they don't have to worry about their reward with Allah. Okay. Then, after that affirmation, the Quran goes back Because it is going to say something that I believe Allah knew could be misunderstood by readers. So we accepted your solemn pledge those who remained in Sina and did not go return to Egypt and this is after of course the event with the uh, he, the um, golden heifer or the golden cow and Allah accepting the repentance and the 12 springs of Moses and so Allah accepted their solemn pledge but before they go to Palestine and saying hold fast with all your strengths unto what we have vouchsafed you what we've sent you especially the Ten Commandments and bear in mind all that is therein so that you might remain conscious of God notice raising Mount Sinai high above you 
ورفعنا فوقكم الطور I don't know if I noted it in my notes but this again uh, this is 63 um, I didn't uh, write down but maybe I'll find it anyway it's equivalent in the Bible but in the biblical narrative there is a reference to the raising of the Mount Sinai as yet another miracle with the Israelites that the mountain itself was raised and to shadow the Israelites Muslim commentators split on this matter some accepted the biblical narrative and said this references that means that as the Bible says that it, the mountain was actually lifted to shadow the Israelites who took the pledge others said there is no evidence that the Quran is affirming this uh, claimed miracle but simply that you lived in the shadow of Mount Sinai and living in the shadow of a mountain if you spent any time in the desert you will know the value of living in the shadow of a mountain it's no small blessing especially when the changes in when it's winter time being able to be shielded in one of the enclaves or caves in a mountain especially if you're not a nomadic people who know how to build uh, warm tents is an enormous blessing and also mountains the vegetation that grows around mountains the, the, the cactus retains water there's the, the there are a lot of survival benefits and so the Quranic commentators who said that basis basically the Quran is saying and we've given you the blessing you yes you did not return to Egypt as your friends who went back to that um, easy life but you had this instead okay so after that ثم توليتم من بعد ذلك فلولا فضل الله عليكم ورحمته لكنتم من الخاسرين and yet after this you turned away and had it not been for God's favor upon you and his grace you surely would have found yourselves among the lost okay ولقد علمتم الذين اعتدوا منكم في السبت فقلنا لهم كونوا قردة خاسئين فجعلناها نكالا لما بين يديها وما خلفها وموعظة للمتقين. So for you are well aware of those among you who profane the Sabbath. Thereupon we said unto them, Be apes despicable, and set them up as a warning example for their time and for all times to come as well as an admonition to all those who are conscious of God. 
Now, we've encountered this reference to violating the Sabbath and the Quran saying Kunu Khasi'in that becomes become um, and as I said before in uh, about this similar revelation and I'm blanking out as to what which surah it was in but it will be easy to find out is that while you have Quranic commentators that took this literally, that those who violated the Sabbath, they were actually turned into, and then you get some very bizarre stuff like that some of them were turned into apes while others were turned into pigs, and that some will say, oh, the, the men were turned into pigs, or the women were turned into apes. Uh, the other half of Quranic commentators accepted what Mujahid said that 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 reference to become means become as if apes and idiomatically that meant in Arabic at the time that the life when, when you called someone an ape in Arabic at that time what you meant is that they have no purpose and they jump around aimlessly they have no ethics no morality and no purpose so it it is irreverence, kunu al-khasi'in, irreverence to their moral state, not an actual physical transformation. We've dealt with this before, but because of the, unfortunately, the number of, and, and what's really unfortunate is that I've heard this taught in two or three Islamic centers in the U.S., and I was shocked that the commentator just simply says, and so they were turned into apes. I mean, one, you know, unless you carefully qualify it, it could sound very racist. And when you hear some Muslims today, when they're, will refer, will say something, uh, will say something about Jews like the Akhu uh, Kiroda, the brothers of apes. That's racist and unbecoming. And on top of all of that, uh, it's, it, um, it, it's very hard to, to uh, unless, unless first you qualify this, that it doesn't talk about all Jews. It's talking about those who violated the Sabbath, a group of people. And if you remember when we talked about it before, it was a particular group that insisted on fishing on the Sabbath because they thought that the fish was plenty. But other than that, that so many Muslim commentators 
said that this is a figure of speech and that if you yourself in fact what's I just remember this one of the most common insults about people in this is now in in uh, uh, Islamic literature are in the Abbasid era so we're talking about anywhere from 150 Hijra to 350 Hijra in, in, in Arabic poetry is that anyone who pretends to speak with knowledge and who is in fact ignorant is often called in Arabic prayer poetry a kurd, a monkey, an ape. So, I definitely would not just, I, I think it's malpractice. It's, it's a, a, again, it's a breach of due diligence to just teach our children that, so God just turned Jews into apes. And even worse than that. Okay. Okay. Now, what time is it? All right. Okay. So now we come to the very famous story of the Baqarah. And the narrative of the Baqarah is if you, this is now uh, 66, where Moses السلام, Musa السلام, tells his people, you have to slaughter a cow. First, Let's read the story of that cow in the Bible. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 1. Okay, so it goes on to say, If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who has slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are around about him that is slain. And it shall be, that the city which is next unto the man slain, even the elders of that city shall take a heifer which has not been wrought with and which has not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley which is neither eared nor sown and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near for them the Lord, the God, has chosen to minister unto him, 
and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their sword shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people, Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. Thou shalt thou, so shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Okay. So what is Deuteronomy saying? Basically, simplifying a bit what it says is that if you find someone who is killed and you don't know who killed this person, you shall see this body is close to which town so you shall measure the uh, whose territory this body was found and then the elders and judges will come forth and they will bring a cow and they will slaughter the cow and the inhabitants of this town will come or the elders of the town, the representatives from the town, will come and they will put their blood or put the cow's blood onto their hands. They'll, they'll put their hands in the cow's blood and they will swear to God that they don't know who killed this person, that they didn't kill this person, and they don't know who killed this person. And only then they will be declared innocent of that blood. So it is a procedure by which if there is a murder victim or a victim of a killing, whether someone slaughtered, slain in some way, and the body is found and you don't know who did it and so the members of a town or an area in which the body was found in order to avoid being held collectively liable for the death of that person they take a blood oath and the blood oath will then vindicate them and um, forgive them from, or remove liability from upon them. That's the procedure. It wasn't an unusual procedure, by the way, in, in near, old Near Eastern law and in Ezraelite law. And the idea of this procedure is that you keep your territory safe. If you want to avoid being held liable for bodies found in your land, then you make sure that your land is protected. You appoint guards, you hire guards, you have um, 
uh, what do you call it, um, uh, rounds where, you know, people go, go around and, and make sure that the, the, the borders are secure. But it was a way in which uh, to administer that blood oath. <clears throat> now, there are narratives in the Islamic tradition that speak of and, and surprisingly a, a large number of narratives. For instance, you find them in, in Tabari, just the most, or Baqai, um, Tafsir al-Baqai, and, and in a number of others that um, tell you the story of the heifer, but all of these narratives with all their variations upon the same theme go back to the same genesis and the same origin. And that is the blood oath that used to be practiced among the ancient Israelites or that was part of uh, Jewish law. So, a body was found, and according to the law, now a heifer is going to be sacrificed and to for the elders to take a blood oath over the heifer. What the Quran talks about is that the process itself is supposed to be fairly straightforward. In Deuteronomy, you notice that it specifies that the heifer can, has to be of a certain age and a brief reference to a certain quality. Okay. But what the story in the Quran is that the people, when Moses السلام, and Musa السلام, told them, now do the blood oath process or procedure, they kept asking for details and specifics about the heifer. So the process is that you slaughter the heifer, you take the, the oath over the blood, and we're done. But instead, what they do, as the Quran instructs you, I'm sorry. So, first, they respond to him. Moses said unto his people, Behold, God bids you to sacrifice a cow. And they said, Are you mocking us? So first, they resisted the sacrifice of the cow, complying with the law, and say, Are you kidding us? He said, I seek refuge with God against being so ignorant. So I'm not making, I'm not mocking you. I'm not joking with you. This is serious, basically. Obey the law. 
They said, pray unto our behalf, unto thy sustainer, that he makes clear to us what she is to be like, meaning what is uh, which cow. And Moses replied, behold, he says, it's to be a cow neither old nor immature, but of an age in between. Do then what you have been bidden. This, by the way, is what is mentioned also in the Bible that it has to be a cow in between. Okay. Then they said, said they, pray on our behalf unto thy sustainer that he may clear to us what her color should be. Moses answered, behold, he says, it is to be a yellow cow, bright of hue, pleasing to the beholder. Said they, pray unto our behalf unto thy sustainer that he may clear to us what she is to be like. For us, all cows resemble one another. And then, if God so wills, we truly be, we will truly be guided aright. Moses answered, Behold, he says, it is to be a cow not broken in to plow the earth or to water the crops, free of fault, without markings of any other color. Said they, at last thou hast brought out the truth, and thereupon they sacrificed her, although they had almost left it undone. So, oh, and let's take the So, O children of Israel, because you had slain a human being and then to cast the blame for this crime upon one another, though God will bring to light what you would conceal, he said, apply this principle to some of those cases of unresolved murder. In this way, God saves lives from death and shows you his will so that you might learn to use your reason. Okay, this is Muhammad's Asad translation, which is a little bit interpretive. So, where it Okay, so first, is that many Quranic commentators said that the Israelites' lines of question shows that they were raising um, raising their questions in order to delay execution. In other words, that they didn't really want to do it. And it was a delay tactic. But the opinion that I like, and I think is, is closer to the spirit of the Quranic narrative, is that they kept raising questions the way that often human beings will complicate God's law and God's command. So let me just give you, a, you know, among the, the fatawa that comes up in Ramadan, every Ramadan, I see these fatawa come up online. Someone will ask whether using a butt washer 
in Ramadan will break your fast. And I often wonder to myself, who sits there, who hates his life sufficiently to think of, well, if I have saliva, does this break my fast? If I wash my nose, does this break my fast? If I use a butt washer, does this break my fast? You see, the law gets complicated. The law gets complicated not because of questions by the mainstream. The law gets complicated because of the questions by the fringe. Let me explain this to you, something about the way the law works, and this is in all legal systems, not just Islamic law, not Jewish law, but all legal systems. The majority of the people can have absolutely no problem, and they, they receive Allah's command, they receive the command, they receive the, whatever the law is, you know, um, do X, and the majority, the mainstream will do X. But the fringe will come and the fringe could have, could be actually suffering from some type of neurosis, some type of psychological problem. And they will ask the questions that the mainstream doesn't think of. Well, how about this? How about that? Well, how about this? Now, when a jurist answers the question, the jurist doesn't note in answer to the question, I was asked this question by an erotic person. The jurist just answers the question. The jurist doesn't note, I was asked this question by a fringe person, or I was asked this question by a person who didn't smell good, or I was asked this question by a person who wasn't dressed well, or I was asked this person by a person who's not educated, or I was asked this person by a person who's highly educated. The jurist just answers the question. But once the question is answered, it has become a part of what the layers that define the law. So the next stage, the mainstream comes and finds the law with a further wrinkle. But that wrinkle will elicit numerous other wrinkles. And the law becomes more and more and more complicated, but not because of the activity of the mainstream, but it's actually because of the activity of the fringe. Of course, there is a way to solve this problem, and that is for jurists to refuse to document responses that they understand to raise a complication that most people should not, ought not worry about. 
And that is why in the old times, when you hear the old Fukaha, they tell you, that, you know, 50% of what they were asked about, they would say, I don't know. I don't believe that they truly didn't know. They didn't want to answer. La alam means don't ask me that because it's not something that we were told anything about and it's not something that I'm going to give you an answer to. Go away. Unfortunately, this type of humility and this type of wisdom is missing with so many legal experts who will rush to give a response and but they don't think is this response really of concern to the mainstream or is this a complication raised by someone who's thinking of something that they ought not to be think of, thinking of because Allah didn't make it an issue for us. Similarly, here, they kept raising questions about that heifer. It could be that they didn't want to sacrifice a cow. But it also could be that they, the repeated pattern among the Israelites at the time of Moses is that they kept hearkening back to the traditions and practices of the cultures that subjugated them. The golden calf that they worshipped. Their demand to see God in order to continue, although God had split the Red Sea for them. They're, they're, and then they're, they're, the legalism, the ancient Egyptians, their rules of worship was remarkably complicated. They were highly, highly ritualistic. And yet here again, we see another example where they are asking these questions or specifications about the type of cow to be slaughtered that would just simply make finding an appropriate cow in every other situation a far more challenging matter. I told you that the story of the Israelites is full of lessons for Muslims. Those who said, we want our life of comfort and we prefer a life of servitude over hardship, even if we are, we, we want a life of comfort even if we are enslaved and even if we live in servitude uh, and God gets condemns for, the, for that. I wonder if, if, the Quran was being revealed about us Muslims and the way we've dealt with God's law. It's a terrifying thought to think that that example of the heifer and the Israelites 
saying, well, what color, what type, what age, what... It reminds me of so of many instances of the legalism, obsessive legalism, that occupies so much of the Muslim spirit. And Allahu Alam, Allah knows best. Now, notice here on um, this is now 73. كَذَلِكَ يُحْيِي اللَّهُ الْمَوْتَ وَيُرِيكُمْ آيَاتِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ This is uh, 73. So, what is, is this about? Most Quranic, classical, traditional Quranic commentators say that when the heifer was killed, The, they took a part of the heifer, like I think a leg or an arm of the heifer or something like that, and struck the dead corpse with it. And the dead corpse came to life, returned to life, and testified and identified its killer. So, if you look at, do you have the study Quran? Let's see how the study Quran does it. Um, this is the study Quran. We said, strike him with part of it. Thus does God give life to the, de to the dead and show you his signs that happily, that happily you may understand. So, the study Quran chooses the, the, the translation that is closer to most traditional tafsir. Muhammad Asad, notice how he translates it. We said, apply this principle to some of those cases of unresolved murder. In this way, God saves lives from death and shows you his will so that you might learn to use your reason. The translation that Muhammad Asad chose is, is grounded in Tafsir Muhammad Abdu and is grounded in Tafsir Abdullah Najjar which in turn is grounded in the tafsir of people like Zamakhshari and other earlier authorities before Zamakhshari. And what they argued is they rejected the idea or the narrative that a part of the heifer was taken and the dead body was struck with it and the body then came to life to testify about its killer, but rather argued that the Quran is talking about the birth of that procedure among the Israelites, and that Moses told the Israelites that 
this principle of collective responsibility for dead bodies, either you bear collective um, the, the collective deal, the um, um, the collective blood money for the dead body because you failed to make your land safe and the body was found in your land or you take an oath that you absolutely and it's a it's a it's a yamin mughalaza meaning it's a type of oath that you, there's no repentance from that you 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 condemn your soul if you lie about it that in fact you have no idea who killed this person you have no information you have no knowledge uh, etc this procedure in fact was used in old times to encourage tribes, clans, villages, towns to be responsible for their territory and making their territory safe. And so people like Abdullah Najjar and Muhammad Abdu and so on argued that exact in the same way that Allah says that we decreed whoever kills a human being, they have killed humanity. And whoever saves a human being, they have saved entire humanity. And the the way that the Quran talks about saves, when the Quran says uh, saves a human being, it doesn't say save, it says ahya, whoever brings a human being to life. Similarly, here they argued that what the Quran is talking about is that Musa tells the Israelites the purpose of this procedure is to preserve life, is to protect life. And that in the same way that the Quran later on tells Muslims that understand that in punishment, that in punitive measures, there is life for you, meaning that the way you protect life is through enforcement of punishments. Similarly here, that it is telling the Israelites, if you use your reason, you will understand that these types of measures, or this particular measures with, it's all its nuances that you find in Deuteronomy, because I've just read a literal part of it, uh, is necessary for the preservation of life. There's more Bible study. There's more... Shall we just stop here? Okay. Uh, let's stop here tonight. And we'll continue, inshallah, with Surah Al-Waqarah on Tuesday. Wednesday. Oh, on Wednesday, sorry. On Wednesday... Um, Surah Al-Baqarah and Bible study <laughs> and then the Saturday of follow inshallah I hope that then we'll be able to start with the ethical messages of Surah Al-Baqarah um, 
because Wednesday will definitely be still in the the, the contextual message of Surah Al-Baqarah. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, honestly, it's it's like so it's so hard to gather the words to express the gratitude, and and I you know sort of get embarrassed. Like last time, I was asking people, was I stupid, and you know, was I saying stuff that just sounded really dumb? But I you, you know I'm that. so what. You don't have to express gratitude, don't No, I mean, it's not, I feel like I, if I don't, it's wrong, because it's, um, I guess the way that I would liken it, I, I feel like we suffer from shackles, right? Shackles of the brain, shackles of baggage, um, you know, from what we learn, whether it's in Muslim spaces or, or we, what we don't hear. And so when we can sit through a halakha of, Four hours, and we didn't even cover, you know, honestly, that much of the of the actual chapter. Um, but you feel like shackles are just constantly getting undone and undone and undone, and it's it's a process of liberation, intellectual liberation, um, it, and it it strengthens your faith because you know you have heard just so many stupid things that just never made sense, but you had no idea how to address them. And so when you actually come in and you explain and you give us context and you give us an understanding, it's actually, you know, what you're giving us is an exercise in empathy in a sense because you're painting the picture of what people were experiencing and how, you know, what they were receiving and the message, you know, so it makes sense. And then we can say, oh, I get it. I know people like this. I understand you know, if I were in that situation, you know, or what, how would people that we know respond to the situation? So it's an incredible exercise in empathy, but it's also an incredible insight into the painstaking detail that is required to really understand what was going on at that time. And it just, like, I have to express gratitude because for a personality, any personality, and it's you, who takes, you know, has the intellectual curiosity, of course, to be able to ask questions like, well, why did they say this? You know, or, or even in our time to say, why did the French Islamophobes harp on this? What is it that they were really figuring out? And for that to actually push you to study Surah Baqarah more and investigate, you know, all the different things. And then to go and then read all the different sources about, you know, whether it's, it's Arabic poetry, to understand the, the, you know, idiomatic expressions, or to understand, you know, the history of what was happening to the Muslims at that time, or, you know, the, I mean, it's just like, it, it just requires so much patience and insight and, and determination to figure it out. Um, how can you not be grateful? Because how, how else would we learn any of this? And, and, you know, so you're liberating us and unshackling us one shackle at a time. And I think that that, it's, it's like allowing us to get ready to fly. And I don't think that that's something that um, very many people can do. And even as I was saying to you at the break, um, because I know that you feel you know depressed and burdened that why aren't other Muslims looking at things this way? Why aren't they able to return the gaze? Why aren't they studying the Bible so they can have the tools to fight Islamophobia? I mean, I feel like just the fact that you've done it and that you've shared it and you've revealed doorways that Muslims can take 
to stand up for themselves is, is such an incredible service. Um, it's, it's alarming that you can't think of a handful of people that can actually return the gaze. But it's also extremely hopeful that, you know, when all these people always write, what can I do, what can I do, what can be done? Well, here you go. Here's what you can do. You can study the Bible. You can learn how to return the gaze. You can know that the Bible has so many more things that we could point to as Muslims to say, you know, here's how, you know, you want to talk about the chronic tradition? Well, let's talk about yours first. These are so, these are gifts. And so how can we not express our gratitude? And like not, you know, to say, to not say, um, or even the issue, sorry, I'm like writing notes because I wanted to just mention this, even the point of abrogation. Like I've always been really frustrated. Like what do you think God doesn't know like what God wants to say and you think that God is, is going to make a mistake and say something later that it needs to be corrected before. So when you walked us through your methodology of understanding abrogation and it just becomes so clear, like when people say that, it's so impolite and arrogant and intellectually lazy. To hear you say that is so empowering and it explains so much and now we have the tools to turn around and say, yeah, abrogation is wrong and here's why. That's so powerful. So thank you. Thank you a thousand times. Thank you. And we've only finished day two. Um, and we have another, you know, I mean, to think that, okay, we're going to still, con you know, cover more historical context before we even get into the ethical part. Oh my God. It's just incredible. So, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. And yeah, that's all I want to say. <laughs> so, thank you everyone for being with us. And inshallah, I look forward to um, more unshackling. I'm sure. Okay, have a wonderful rest of the weekend. We will see you Wednesday, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.